It is so good to be with you this morning. I am so happy to be here. Wow, this is going to be easy if you clap at that. Jeez, it's nice. I mean, if you want to throw in a couple of amens and preach at brothers or something like that, you can do that too. Um, I am so glad to be here. My wife and my daughters and I are really enjoying being at Highland Park, um, which, by the way, is the friendly Christchurch campus. So just, just so you know. But we miss you guys. So glad to be here. And we're excited to be able to look at the book of Exodus, continuing our series in the book of Exodus, looking at a prototype for how God deals with his people and pictures of what it means to be the people of God. And today we're going to look at the fact that we were made for worship. But I want to start with a question. Do you know where in the Bible is the first mention of an individual being filled with the Holy Spirit or with the Spirit of God. You might know that in the New Testament and the Old Testament, it speaks of the filling of the Holy Spirit differently. So in the New Testament, we see a description of the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer all the time, always accessible, able to be accessed simply by yielding to his empowering and his direction. But in the Old Testament, we see something different. In the Old Testament, we see that the Spirit of God is given to a particular individual at a particular moment for a particular task. So, where in the Bible is the first instance of someone being filled with the Spirit of God? Was it Noah? He had a pretty big task. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the fathers of the nation of Israel? Or maybe Joseph, who rose to the second highest position in all of Egypt? Actually, it was none of those characters from the book of Genesis. Although, I'm sure that God gave him his spirit, right? To accomplish those tasks. But the Bible doesn't say that explicitly. In fact, the filling of the Holy Spirit's not even mentioned in the book of Genesis. It's not until we get to Exodus that we begin to see a description of God filling someone with his spirit for a particular purpose. So Moses, right? Got to be Moses. All right, well, let's look in our passage today, which is Exodus chapter 31, and we'll see who that individual was that God filled with his spirit. It's the first mention of it in the scriptures. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel. Everybody say Bezalel with me. Bezalel. Excellent. The son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the, I have filled him with the Spirit of God. With wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of craftsmanship. So the first person who the Bible describes as having been filled with the Spirit for a particular task was an artist, a craftsman. That gets me kind of excited, you know? (laughs) Because I'm an artist. Many of you know that I'm an artist. My, my 
my formal academic training is in visual art. I, in Southern California, I was a, an actively exhibiting painter represented by a gallery in Orange County and in L.A. And even since moving here, I've continued to draw and paint and occasionally get an opportunity to exhibit. And I know that many of you are involved in all kinds of artistic expressions. And by the way, if you are, let me know, because we as a church, we want to engage. I'm particularly interested in engaging visual artists to enhance our experience of worship together as the people of God. But what we see from this passage right away is that God values artistic expression, which shouldn't be too surprising to us, given the first five words of the Bible— If you can think of the first five words of the Bible, say them with me. In the beginning, God created. Yes, right? What was God doing at the foundations of the universe? He was creating. He was being creative. Sometimes we walk through this world and we forget that that we were fashioned. We were created. This place was created. It was his original idea. All of it was. Lions and flowers and sharks and butterflies and giraffes and platypuses. Platypi. Trees. I mean, these things did not exist You know, I do a painting of a tree, and and somebody says, looks like a tree. God makes a tree. It it was his original idea. It never existed before. Right? (laughs) He came up with it. Have you, our bodies are these amazing machines. Have you ever just stopped in the middle of an activity, even just walking, and just marveled at this machine that is a part of who we are? Even right now, it's involved in things that that we're not even aware of. Pumping blood, processing oxygen, trying desperately to figure out what to do with that donut you ate this morning for breakfast. Right? And and there, there are also intentional signals that we're sending to our body all the time. Right now, there are electrical impulses going from my brain to my mouth, telling my mouth what to do. Making me do crazy hand motions, right? Um, sometimes effectively, sometimes not so effectively. And it's processing right now in you. And our bodies are taking this in. Our bodies are amazing instruments. The entire universe is this finely tuned machine. And the closer we look at the world, the more evident it is. That it is the result of the intention and mind of a creative designer, master artist. And then, in the very first chapter of the Bible, it says, so God created mankind in his own image. In his image, he created them. Male and female, he created them. You and I were created in the image of that master artist artist that one who we're speaking of being so amazing and so creative and inventive you and I were made in his image with the ability to love and emote 
the ability to think and reason. And a part of the image of that master creator that was imparted to us is an impulse to create. An impulse to create. Now this is something that that no one has been able, able to explain through evolution, through natural selection, through survival of the fittest, that we have this natural impulse to create. How does natural selection or survival of the fittest result in beings that produce Mozart symphonies and a Rembrandt portrait and an Ang Lee film and a perfect two-and-a-half-minute Beatles pop song, right? How does that just come about? Through survival of the fittest, why would we have an impulse to do that? And yet we see that reflected throughout human history. I taught a, a class at Trinity on art appreciation, and I wanted to show a couple of slides from that because, in fact, the earliest evidence that we have of a human presence in the world is actually evidence of creative expression. It's evidence of art. This slide is from uh, the caves of Lascaux in Lascaux, France. Uh, They're dated at 1700 B.C. And so this early human presence is out in the world interacting, having experiences, and then coming into their home and expressing these experiences they're having in the world. Look at the next slide. It shows a detail of how beautiful these, these drawings are, how, how natural and, and flowing and beautiful um, these drawings of horses are. If we look at the next slide, one of the earliest objects that we have access to is called the Woman of Willendorf. It was found in Willendorf, Austria. It's dated at 24,000 B.C. You can hold it in your hands, and it's this sculpture. Someone took a stone, they took from the resources that were around them, and they created something new that had never existed before. We were made for creativity. But even with that, it's still pretty remarkable, isn't it? That the first person that's described as being filled with the Spirit would be Bezalel, an artist. Why Bezalel? Why an artist? For what task? Well, let's continue to read in Exodus 31 where we left off. Um, Moreover, I have appointed Aholiab, son of Ahisamach. So Bezalel was not left to himself to do this task. God is providing others alongside him of the tribe of Dan to help him. Also, I have given ability to all the skilled workers to make everything I have commanded you. The tent of meeting, the Ark of the Covenant, with the law, with the atonement cover on it, and all the other furnishings of the tent. The table and its articles, the pure gold lampstand and all its accessories, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils, the basin with its stand, and also the woven garments, both the sacred garments for Aaron the priest and the garments for his son. Now we're going to see that the, all of these things are referenced in the, in the chapters previous to that. We'll talk about that in just a minute. 
So what was the purpose that Bezalel was to accomplish through the filling and empowering of the Holy Spirit? It was the building and adorning of the tabernacle and all its furnishings. Now what was the tabernacle? The tabernacle was a temporary portable structure that the nation of Israel was to carry with them as they wandered in the desert after their release from captivity in Egypt. It was also called the tent of meeting and you can see why it was called the tent of meeting um, as we go back to that previous slide. You can see why it was called the tent of meeting as uh, these stakes would just be pulled up and the nation of Israel could continue to move and wander through the desert and then just set up camp again. Now it had two purposes. First and foremost, its purpose was to house the very presence of God. And so as we see in this slide that's coming up now, this is a replica of the Ark of the Covenant. Um, It's a replica because, as we all know, the the actual Ark of the Covenant is in a wooden crate in a a large government warehouse somewhere in Washington, D.C., with top people watching it. Of course, we all know that. But... um, The Ark of the the Covenant was where the presence of God would reside behind a curtain in what was called the Holy of Holies. This was a place where heaven and earth met. This was a point of convergence, a site of convergence between the heavenly realms and the earthly realms. The tabernacle and later a more permanent structure called the temple. We're at the very center of everything that was dear to the Jewish nation, to the nation of Israel. This is why when Jesus would say, tear down this temple and I will rebuild it in three days, of course he was talking about himself, he was talking about his body, and that's appropriate, right? Because he also was a point of convergence, wasn't he? A place where the heavenly realm and the earthly realm met. So appropriate that he would call himself the temple. But of course the Jews thought he was talking about the physical temple. And they took it as an insult. Because the temple and the tabernacle were at the very heart of everything that is dear to the nation of Israel. It was a reminder to them, a constant reminder to them, of God's presence with them. And of their identity as his people. It was completely connected to God's glory, to his reputation, and to their identity. So although it seems surprising that the first individual described in the Bible as being filled with the Spirit was an artist, given a building project, I think it's clear this was no mere building project. There was something deeply significant about the tabernacle, and a structure that contained the very presence of God needed to reflect the beauty of the one who inhabited that space. And the building of that structure could not be haphazard, careless, or unplanned. It required intention and care and meticulous attention to detail. And so we see in the chapters leading up to chapter 31 in Exodus... A very detailed description of the instructions that God gave for the building of the tabernacle. He gave measurements, specific measurements. He talked about specific materials for each part of this. 
gold, silver, the finest materials that could be used, the finest wood, gems, the finest dyed fabrics, with even specific instructions about the colors that were to be used in the tabernacle. There were specific instructions about how each of the objects was to be decorated. And the decorations often incorporated representational elements, natural elements like leaves, buds, vines, and fruit. But one thing that we notice about these instructions is they seem to be completely disconnected from any kind of practical purpose. God, instead of giving utilitarian, practical instructions, his plans seem to do more with elaborate ornamentation and decorative elements, adornment. For many of his instructions, their only purpose clearly was aesthetic. To adorn the structure and all its furnishings with beauty. Many of you know that I teach a class at Lake Forest College called Elements of Design. It's just a, the basics of visual language. And every semester I started in the same way. I asked them the same questions. Tell me your name, where you're from, what's your major, and tell me the most beautiful place you've ever seen. The question that I asked you all. And their answers to that question vary every semester. And sometimes it's even, you know, the Eiffel Tower at night. I mean, usually it's natural places, places uh, related to nature, but, but sometimes it's even man-made places. They have no problem answering that question. Now, if I had asked them, tell me your name, where you're from, what's your major, and please define beauty for me, they would have had a little bit of a more difficult time with that one, right? You see, we all understand the existence of this thing called beauty. All of us have had deeply moving aesthetic experiences. We were designed to engage with beauty. God wanted us to understand that this place is a reflection of his nature, who he is, and he is filled with beauty. It's a value of the kingdom of God. And our hearts were designed to engage with it, to be moved by it emotionally, And for it to create in us a sense of awe and amazement and wonder. You see, aesthetic experiences hit us in a different place than mere utilitarian language. Utilitarian language, practical, accessible speaking, is critical. It's an effective means of communication. It's what I'm using right now to talk to you. But it operates differently than beauty, doesn't it? Utilitarian language enters into us through the front door. Beauty surprises us. It enters in through the back door. Or maybe it's more accurate to say it seeps into us. It goes to a deeper place. And it creates this emotional resonance. This emotional engagement. Art Music, poetry, film, dance, stories, they all enter into us from a different point of access than mere utilitarian language. And any experience 
that is placed in a context of beauty, for that experience, it adds weight and depth. And as I said, emotion, it hits us in a deeper place. And God clearly was concerned with that with the temple, with the tabernacle. He wanted the experience of the people entering into that tabernacle to be powerful. That what took place in that space would not be taken lightly, but would be engaged in with the heart. And that brings us to the second purpose of the tabernacle. The first purpose, I said, was to house the very presence of God. But the second purpose of the tabernacle was to house the worship experiences and practices of the people of God. And this is why it was so important that that Bezalel adorned this structure with beauty. Because, of course, it's important because it houses the very presence of God. But it was important also because of what was going to take place in that. You see, from the very beginning of the establishment of a people of God, as long as there has been a people of God, they have been worshiping. It's what we were made for. We were made to be a proclamation of God's glory, beauty, and goodness. The Westminster Catechism states that the chief end of man is to glorify God. It's worship. To proclaim his glory. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Remember, Jesus said to the woman at the well, The Father is seeking true worshipers who will will worship him in spirit and in truth. This is what God is seeking. It's what we were made for. So, of course, the tabernacle needed to be filled with beauty because, first of all, worship is first and foremost for and about God. Oftentimes we evaluate our worship experience based on what we're getting out of it. But worship is first and foremost not about us and what we're getting out of it. It is about and for God. We want to bless him, right? I mean, what a privilege. Any any parent knows what a blessing it is to see their family getting along with each other. And unified, right? We want to bless God. We want to give him pleasure. It's first and foremost about him. But secondly, the tabernacle needed to be filled with beauty because worship is about the heart. The part of us that's engaged in worship is the heart. And beauty engages the heart. So what were the worship practices? God gave very detailed instructions about a lot of different, a variety of different worship practices that would take place in the tabernacle. I want to focus on one that was engaged in from the very beginning of the people of God. The Levites were leading in all sorts of worship practices, but there's one in particular that you and I are continuing to engage in today. Let's look at First Chronicles chapter 15. David is speaking to the Levites. The Levites were the early worship leaders in the church, and he says, Now David built houses for himself in the city of David. He prepared a place 
for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said, no one is to carry the ark of God but the Levites. For the Lord chose them to carry the ark of God and to minister to the people of God? No, it says to minister to him forever. Going on in that passage. Then David spoke to the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their relatives, the singers, with instruments of music, harps, lyres, loud-sounding cymbals, to raise sounds of joy. So the singers, Haman, Asaph, Esthem, were appointed to sound loud cymbals of bronze. And Chenaniah, the chief of the Levites, was in charge of the singing. He gave instruction in singing because... He was skillful. Something we do every week, the people of God were doing back then in the tabernacle and then later on in the temple. Of course, our whole worship service is worship in a sense. In a sense, what we're doing right now could be considered worship, opening God's word together, allowing our hearts to be moved and changed by his word. But there is something different that takes place as we're singing, than when we're listening to, speaking a message. Some people would say that the value of singing is that it softens our hearts and readies us for the part of the service where real transformation is going to take place. But I would say that there is just a significant transformation that's taking place as we're singing, as when we're listening to the message. It's absolutely true that music prepares us to hear God's word. But there's also formation and transformation that's taking place as we're singing. It's just a different kind of transformation. Worship is soaking in and practicing a heart disposition so that a heart disposition of softness and receptivity and trust and dependence would seep into us and become like tacit knowledge. Knowledge that we don't even know how we got just because we were soaking in a particular environment. So that it would become second nature to us and we would walk through this life with a heart of worship. But why singing in particular? Because worship has to do with the heart. And you all know this, right? Music is a language of the heart. It engages the soul. We know that, right? That's why we're singing. That's why we're using music. Because using music allows the message to enter in through a different point of access. It engages a different part of us than plain utilitarian language. And it adds depth and emotional resonance to our expressions. It's soaking in a truth rather than merely just hearing a truth. Another reason we sing is that it unifies our voices. Have you ever thought about that? That when we sing, we're all saying the same thing together simultaneously, proclaiming the same proclamation about God's grace, about God's greatness together. It creates the solidarity as the people of God, right? We're using our voices together, and it unites us. But another significant thing that's happening as we're singing is 
we are actually creating something together. We're actually in this act of creating this beautiful expression. We join our voices together to create this thing in a moment. It exists for a moment and then it's gone. But we do it to bless God and to please God. Singing can be a deeply transformational moment in our services, but only if you engage in it. Right? That's the only time that it actually works is if you press in and really engage with it. So I want to end by giving you some tips for engagement. Some of you are experts at this. But I just want to give you some tips as a worship leader. Be aware of the content of the song and engage with the particular content that you're singing at that moment. I'm sure that you've noticed that there are some songs that are directed to God and some songs that are about God. If it's directed to God, place yourself in his presence and actually sing it to him. Try closing your eyes to help you to do that, right? If you know the words, just close your eyes. It's so, there's a screen in front of you, right? And everybody wants to look at the screen when there's a screen in front of us. But close your eyes. Closing your eyes allows you to not be so much aware of your physical surroundings and the place that you are right now and allows you to put yourself in the heavenlies to enter into his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. If it's being sung to God, put yourself in his presence and sing it to him, in front of him, right? If it's about God, be aware of the fact that we're all doing this together, that we're the people of God, proclaiming these truths about God together, proclaiming them to the heavenlies. And that is just as powerful. Another tip is to think about your posture. The Bible has a lot to say about our posture when we're praying and when we're singing. And the reason is because our, our heart follows our body. So if we use body language that's resistant and like, oh, when is this going to be done? Where does our heart go? If, if our body language says, then our heart's going to go there as well. But if our body takes a posture of softness and receptivity and engagement, then our heart will be soft and receptive and engage. Our sanctuaries aren't set up for kneeling. <laughs> but as you're singing, if it's appropriate for you to take a posture, for your heart to take a posture of humility, then simply just bowing as you're singing can be like kneeling and and your heart will follow in a heart of humility. If we're talking about God's greatness, then doing something, something as simple as lifting your head. Just to, 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 as an expression in your heart will follow that, that you're, you're thinking about how great and big and majestic God is. You're thinking about his transcendence and so you're lifting your head. Of course, the Bible talks often about lifting our hands, lifting our hands to lift him up to say, God, you are great. And I lift you up right now and honor you. 
Your heart will follow your body. If you're singing and, and, and there's a sense in this song that you're receiving something or that you're offering something to God, simply just putting your hands out with palms up will allow your heart to follow in a posture of offering something to God or receiving something from Him. You know, there's this one thing that they do in churches sometimes. Um, they, they'll put their hands together like this, like, like that. It's called clapping. <laughs> you know, you know, and you, if you feel like, you know, I, uh, if I clap, it's going to throw the band off. Believe me, right? You know, so just clap silently. You know, just move a little bit. And, and that can lead your heart into a posture of celebration. Right? If, this, if it's appropriate for the song, let your body... Lead your heart to a posture of joy and celebration. Now, this one I'm pushing you. Okay, I know I'm pushing it now. But try singing. <laughs> it's amazing, right? Just, just vibrating our vocal cords together. It's this, that, that's a part of our body and engaging our voice. So, and you might say, yeah, you would not say that if you've ever heard me sing. But engage your voice. If you're self-conscious, you can sing softly. But join your voice with us. Sing loud badly, too. That's okay. Right? It's, it's the fact that we're creating this beautiful expression to God together. The most important thing is that we're practicing a heart disposition. That's what worship is. Soaking in and practicing a heart disposition so that as we practice it, that heart disposition becomes like tacit knowledge. It becomes like second nature. If we practice cynicism and skepticism, you'll create a habit of being cynical and skeptical. But if you practice softness, compassion, love, adoration, and surrender, you'll develop a heart that lives with that heart attitude. And Paul says, when we do that, when we live with that kind of a heart, that's the truest form of worship that we can engage in, right? He says, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. This is your true act of worship. Practicing a heart disposition in the context of beauty so that our lives will reflect a heart of worship is what's taking place. I want to just close with this one passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 16 says this, Do you not know that you are a temple of God? And the Holy Spirit dwells in you. It was important for the temple to be built with care because it housed the very presence of God. But God no longer dwells in a tabernacle or a temple. Paul tells us, you are the temple of God. And the Holy Spirit dwells in you. So that same kind of care that was given to the building 
of the tabernacle and then later the temple is required as we form our lives and our hearts. And a heart that's appropriate to carry that beautiful presence is a heart of worship. And the forming and building of that heart takes place in the midst of worship. That is the work of worship. And that is why God has made us for worship. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have now to bless you. To give you pleasure as you hear our voices unite together. Lord, may you be blessed. May we give you joy. And Holy Spirit, would you assist us? Because we confess it is sometimes difficult for us to engage in this act of worship. We get distracted. So many things going on. So Holy Spirit, I just invite you to assist us in this time. Help us to engage our voices, our bodies, and our hearts in worshiping you together as the people of God. We honor you and we give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen.